As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's do this. We are here. This is your uh, non-stop therapy session for Canuck fans after today's performance from the organization. Patrick Alvin, Jim Rutherford, the newest member of the Vancouver Canucks organization, Rick Tockett, uh, this morning explained what happened, why the Bruce Boudreau situation was handled the way it was, and what we can expect from the organization and from the coaching staff going forward. Uh, I got to say, um, and not just because I'm a media member, and Rutherford basically dismissed everything we did as media or suggested that what we did contributed completely to why this thing played out the way it did as far as Bruce Boudreaux was concerned. Uh, I'm not buying it. We'll get into all of it because there's just so many layers to this situation. So we knew we needed an emergency podcast. Uh, we're going to get a chance to hear from you, all of our VIPs. All three of us are here, the Dream Team, Farhan, Harmon, Drancer, we are here, and uh, then later on in the week, Harm and I will have our regular VanCast, but this was too pressing. Almost as important as the NFL playoffs, but important nonetheless, because I know, I know, Drancer, you're pretty invested in that too. But I was, um, uh, I was deeply disappointed that we had to do the presser during the Bills-Bengals game, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, no, me too. I kind of thought that's why <laughs> they did it. You know, I, I thought, oh, this is perfect for them, because there'll be less media, there'll be no news media, which there wasn't. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm told, I asked after the fact if that contributed to the timing at all. And they said, nope, the coaches truly want to just hit the ground running tomorrow. They've got meetings galore and they don't want to deal with any of this stuff. So they just wanted to be done, have it over with, deal with the good, bad and ugly, and then get on with the hockey piece of it tomorrow. So tomorrow's going to be the first opportunity for uh, Canuck players to meet Rick Tockett uh, in this capacity. And then, of course, game one against the Chicago Blackhawks on Tuesday. But let's start with like we'll work our way through this and we got to start with the hot button part of it and that is how they handled Bruce Boudreaux. Now look, we all love Bruce. And you know, he's this grandfatherly figure and he's 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 got oh, he's got a quip 
and just good to be around and good to deal with. And that's never been from a media perspective, an argument that they shouldn't have fired him. Right. And I think we all know that behind the scenes, you know, I'm sure there were some tough conversations. We see the warm and fuzzy side of Bruce, but there had to be some tension in that building because clearly they were never aligned. And for Jim Rutherford to come out and say the problem was all the speculation. And if there wasn't any speculation, this wouldn't have happened. And I apologize because I talked too much and I was too honest and I needed to zip it. But essentially, he downplayed the long-term ramifications and the impact, the stink this has on the organization. Hi, Wallace. And he, like, he downplayed all of that and just hung it back on the media. But the speculation came from the fact that this has been going forever. And we all understand. I mean, look, it happened with Bruce, right? Before they made the decision to fire Travis Green, they had a conversation with Bruce Boudreaux. But it wasn't a two-week-long recruitment and other interviews, which they admitted to today. And it wasn't um, a season long or a half season long worth of criticism directed his way, right? This all added up to all of that. So you can't say speculation. They brought this on themselves on every level and refused to own it. So I have a lot of thoughts, but the first is the following. Okay. From American Thanksgiving on, right? I remember being on the road through Pittsburgh and Columbus and Boston, and you'll remember the organization was, like, pushing back against reports about discord between Horvat and Miller, and the club played pretty well and lost, nonetheless, in Pittsburgh and Columbus. You know, there was the we-don't-know-what-we're-doing incident at the practice. Like, it was a mess. It was a mess. And through it all, through the grapevine, you heard names like Dale Talon and... Uh, Scott Walker and Claude Julian. Remember, there was the day where everyone was sure that the Canucks had hired Claude Julian. I uh, remember it was that day in Columbus. And so, you know, we all remember how that played out. And then the club decides to fire Travis and basically does so in a panic, hires Bruce Boudreaux before hiring a president of hockey operations, promotes Stan Smeal, who stands in there, and represents the organization with his usual gumption and pride, um, clearly, based on his words, you know, thought he'd be in it for at least a haul. The club publicly says they're going to launch a new search for a top hockey operations uh, head. Within four days, Jim Rutherford is hired. Like, they don't even get through the business week with that extensive search. Stan is demoted again and then promoted again a couple weeks later. Um like, that's your standard? That's that's like, hey, this wasn't messier than that? It's like, isn't part of the appeal of Rutherford, like, isn't part of Rutherford's authority derived from the fact that he's an awful lot better than that? It feels to me like citing that as ordinary course, when, first of all, we were crushing the organization throughout it, right? Like, at the time, we were saying, this is r- rinky-dink, this is ridiculous, Citing that as like a, a, a normal standard to me, that's like Vancouver Canucks quality defense. That's a, that's a Vancouver Canucks quality <laughs> defense of how the organization behaved. And le- and let's make no mistake, as messy as that was, this was significantly worse. Like at least when the Canucks lost that home game in Pittsburgh, and Jim Benning and Travis Green were roundly and explicitly rejected by the fan base, and a jersey was tossed on the ice, like. We didn't know Travis Green was getting fired the next day. We thought he might. We didn't know who his replacement was until it was reported that morning. 
It wasn't telegraphed weeks in advance, and he wasn't crying through press availabilities, nor was he being serenaded by massive chants from the fans as he sort of tearfully clapped his support back at them in his final Canucks home game. Like, those are scenes we've never seen before, and that's not a media creation by any means. That's a well, the players how the organization handled it. Well, and the players' reaction is the most authentic piece in all of this because they know from the inside. You know what I mean? Like, they knew what was coming. Bruce knew what was coming. To suggest that this was all speculation, and I understand that Rick Tockett had not signed a contract until just very recently. So certainly that was part of the timing of it all because they were still going through that process. But, you know, when standards were lower before Jim Rutherford got here, because when Jim, when we had Jim Benny here, we all collectively felt like this guy is just out of his depth, right? He's not good enough to be a National Hockey League general manager. How he's had this job for as long as he has is ridiculous. Coupled with that and the PR missteps of ownership, expectations were low. When Jim Rutherford came in, there were some actual expectations that they could run this like a professional hockey club. And for this to have played out the way it has under his watch, it's baffling. Oh, my God. Right? It's like, inexplicable. It's yeah. So now that's why the fans are even more irate, because what do they have to do now? Like, you, you went out and got your guy. You tried to insulate ownership by hiring a president. You did all of these things. And everybody is wearing the shit. Right, like all the way up to ownership, they all have to wear this, and now it falls in the Tanner Pearson category, the Rachel Dory category, the Francesco Aquilini, uh, you know, family situation, and and all of that. Like it all gets layered into the same thing of culture and how you treat people. Wow, you're not wrong. Well, and I just want to add one quick thing before we move on, which is like when Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick first reported that Tockett was likely the guy and that Bruce Boudreaux's days were numbered, which was what during the Chicago, uh, sorry, the, the game in Florida, the game in sunrise, Florida against the Panthers. Um, at that time, at that moment, before the result of the Panthers game kicked in, Bruce Boudreaux was the second winningest coach in the history of the franchise. Second all time at that moment. Um, he got this team to perform at a 90 point per 82 game level over 103 games. And I say all this, you know, we all like Bruce Boudreaux, obviously. Right. But I want to note that like, this is not coming necessarily from a place of affection. Like there's a lot of things about Bruce Boudreaux, not that I don't like, but that are not, and Harmon can attest to this, that are not a natural fit with how I think about hockey. Right? Like, right down to his personality. Like, I'm a cynic. Bruce Boudreaux's a lovely person. I'm not a lovely person. I've never been a lovely person. I don't even have time for lovely people. Right? Like, Bruce Boudreaux's a genuinely nice guy. I struggled to not, not build a relationship because that's easy to do with nice people, but like, I struggled to connect with him because he's not cynical. I'm cynical. Um, you know, I thought there were details in his matchup game. Um, you know, some of, some of the stuff like that, that I thought, you know, were, were lacking, were, were things that I found frustrating in terms of how this team played, but there's no way ever that I could argue that he did any worse than the talent on this roster dictated he should have. And in fact, I would say this team outperformed their true talent under his watch. Like, I think he got the absolute most that he possibly could have out of this team. I think it's very unlikely that over this team's next 103 games, 
that they get 113 points or more. I think they will underperform that. Um, so in addition to everything else, you know, I don't know that performance necessarily dictated that like this was such a desperately needed step to take that they had to do whatever it took to get rid of him in this manner. It just doesn't, none of it squares. None of it makes sense. HD, your impressions today and of a remarkable last week that we've witnessed unfold at Rogers Arena. Yeah, I think big picture for starters, I'm just amazed that we're somehow in this position just 13 months ago. 13 months ago, by the time the front office had been cleared, by the time the coaching staff had been cleared, I figured, okay, this is probably rock bottom. Like, there's no way it can possibly get worse, right? Like, this has to be an upward trajectory from here. And yet, they've sunk even lower. And the reason why they've sunk even lower is because, look, it's one thing to make a bad signing. It's one thing to make a bad trade. It's one thing to screw up what you do with the roster. It's a totally different low to sink to, totally different realm when you treat people this poorly, when you lack basic human decency. Like that's the bare, the bare minimum. And the other thing to kind of keep in mind is when this whole idea comes up with Rutherford saying that he's not concerned at all about how people outside the organization are going to perceive this. I mean, the conversations that I've had and the people that have been reaching out from different organizations, whether it's been front office people, whether it's even been a couple players who are legitimately wondering what's going on in Vancouver. Vancouver's like to us, it seems like it's a laughing stock right now. You hear, you hear, there's no seams, Harv. There, there's, there's no, there's no seams. It is like, like exactly like people, we've all had right? people, all, the three of us have had people from the executive player and agent level reach out to all of us without us having to reach out to them. That's exactly. And like people that I would not even expect to reach out, like people that I like people that I don't even talk to on a daily or weekly basis necessarily to just kind of be like WTF. Yeah. Like it's, it's stunning. Right. And that's the issue because I I asked Jim about it directly. And I said, look, you guys are a national punchline right now. And agents, and players and executives have reached out to us. And he's like, well, you know, I know more than you do about that, which he absolutely does. But that doesn't mean that those conversations didn't happen. Right. Well, and it also doesn't, I think, I think Patrick Johnson, I think Patrick Johnson uh, talked to an agent who said that it, it, it'll cost the Canucks 25% more to get players who have other legitimate options. Yikes. Yeah. Well, and I mean, also it doesn't mean he has to say it, you know, I, I I'm like, there were a couple moments where it's like, you know, the question, and a lot of them were responses to your question, uh, to your questions, Farhan, because you were the MVP of that press conference. But it's like, why not just say, I'm confident in the direction we're going, and I'm confident that players are going to be excited by what we have to offer. Just say that. It's boilerplate, but that's all you need to say. Is the market mad enough to actually affect real change. And like they have with Jersey tosses before, but I'm talking about the most meaningful change to the owner, fewer tickets, fewer sales, fewer butts in seats. You know, we were there on the weekend. So Edmonton had a lot of orange in the building. That certainly helped what it looked like on television. Um, are we finally at the point where season ticket holders, and I, I get this anecdotally, like, you know, but, but you always get the, the 0.5% of the most extreme 
impressions and attitudes that reach out to you on Twitter, if even that. Exactly. So, yeah. So that's the issue is that will a meaningful number of people, and I'm talking about real fans, not corporate people that need to buy those because they want to entertain clients. See, we're not coming. You need to now reestablish our faith. You need to show us what you're going to do instead of just talking about it and having it blow up like this and having our entire city. Because here's one of the things with Vancouver fans. They don't want to, they don't want the city to look bad. You know what I mean? Like, it's not even a hockey thing. People feel like Vancouver is being laughed at. Well, but you know what? You know what? I think there's one thing to take a real positive out of, which is that the treatment given to Boudreaux by the organization might have been beneath contempt, but the treatment of him by the fans was beyond heartwarming. Right? Like that, that moment with it's a home loss and Canucks fans knowing that this might be Boudreaux's final game are chanting for 30, 45 seconds, sustained, loud, Bruce, there it is. As he, you know what it looked like? It looked like a soccer coach. Like in soccer, you'll often have like the coach go over to the visiting um, section or the, you know, the visiting fan section and share applause with them and acknowledge their support. Like you never see anything like that in hockey. You saw that yesterday at Rogers Arena. I mean, one thing that I've got to give a ton of credit to to this crowd is, you know, we like to say, like, this is an informed fan base. This is a smart fan base. Um, You saw it. Like, you saw the absolute best of this fan base on display and how Bruce Boudreaux was handled in arena, even as the team lost two consecutive games on Friday and Saturday. I, I think there's a lot for this fan base to be really proud of in how they conducted themselves. And I I should let the VIPs know that I have been in contact with Bruce Boudreaux during the course of the day, and he is willing to come on with us here in the VanCast at some point next week. He's obviously uh, Bruce Boudreaux. Uh, uh, Live room? Uh, One or the other. Could be a live room. Could be a (laughs) regular. We got to do a live room. We got to do a live room with Bruce, but he is willing to come on with us uh, on our show. Uh, he's, uh, he's big fans of us and, uh, you know, he wants to, he's packing, he's moving really quick. He's not sticking around here for the end of the season, but, um, uh, you know, he's a guy that's handled himself well. And again, you know, we do see the outside of it. Like I, you know, Bruce can be hard ass in the building. And so, so I'm sure that they've kind of, there's certainly a resentment in the building about how this whole thing has gone down and a belief that Bruce has contributed to all of this and how he has now made the organization look bad. There is internal so, frustration along those lines. Let, let me, let me, so let, we'll get into that because I, there's a lot to unpack there, but I do want to note one other thing, which is, you know, I do think the organization also today had a sense that it's like, as bad as it is, there were 18,000 people in the building having fun last night. And it's one thing to have that when Connor McDavid, who is legitimately worth the price of admission and played his absolute bag off yesterday, right? Like, in the defensive zone, makes that great read on JT Miller on the play uh, with the with the Canucks net, uh, or sorry, yeah, the Canucks net empty. Obviously, we all saw the speed on the goal. We saw the setup to Zach Hyman on the 2-0 goal. Like, Connor McDavid was flying last night. And if you went to the game, you got full value. Now, we'll see what it looks like against Chicago on a Monday. We'll see what it looks like against Columbus on a Friday. Because that's a very different proposition in terms of judging where the market's mood is at in the wake of this week. I hope, I hope that fans keep going personally. Like I hope that hockey is always a draw in this city. That's my personal view. Uh, But, but I will say this also, 
if this building stays full through this, the logical conclusion isn't we don't have to be better. Look at it. Fans will support us no matter how dysfunctional we are. The logical conclusion is we have a really high baseline of support and the, and the marginal losses of doing this right and rebuilding patiently aren't even that great. Meanwhile, the marginal benefit of icing a contender in this city would be through the roof. So we might as well do what makes the most sense based on how the NHL system is set up, bottom out with some, you know, with some focus and intent for a couple of years uh, in, in an effort to accumulate enough elite talent and enough other talent, enough depth of talent to actually take a real run at being a meaningful team in this league again. So many other th- things in, in this and, and Harm, I want to get your thoughts or final thoughts on the Bruce part of this, because there are other layers to this, and we do want to get into Rick Talkett. We also want to invite you to get on stage if you want to chime in. Uh, this is going to be a place for VIPs to vent and tell us how they feel about it all, right? So get on the stage if you want. We've got a couple of people in there now, close to 500 people listening in, so we thank all of you. Um, Harm, any thoughts on, on the Bruce piece of this before we move on? Yeah, the only other thing is Bruce, I think himself, like he mentioned it in the press conference yesterday, he thought he was probably done around November, even after or like in the middle of the Canucks' first road trip that I was on. Um, there was, I think, a meeting that uh, that Rutherford had with uh, with Boudreaux and Boudreaux was genuinely worried that he was going to be dismissed um, right there. And that like if that or it was at least trending in that way, like that tells you something where a head coach who had the type of second half that he did after. Yes, I mean, it was the first three or four games were an absolute nightmare. But for three, four games, he's already nervous and, and worried about his job. Like, what does that tell you about where management felt in the first place about Boudreaux? And again, the reason they're in this situation is because ownership somehow wanted to fast track this process. And Rutherford, again, mentioned mentioned how they were talking to Bruce um, a couple weeks before Travis was actually let go. So that... I think, again, this all starts with, and Drancer, I know you've been harping on this, it all starts with bad process. It all starts with, like, why is the president of hockey ops and general manager even in a position, not that they should be absolved of their blame because they handled this very poorly, but why should they be in a position where they're like, okay, we've got this head coach and we don't really like him, we don't think he's the right fit for this group, but we've got to wait this out and find the right time and, and find enough excuses to then dismiss him. Like that's just a toxic sort of environment to be in. And you're never going to be aligned between management and a coaching staff that way. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. In terms of how the search played out, guys, um, it it was pretty clear in there. Uh, First of all, I was surprised to hear Patrick Alvin say, I've interviewed a number of candidates for this job. Have we got any sense of who those other candidates are, or is that just a convenient thing to say? Because it certainly felt like they were fully zeroed in on Rick Talkett. I haven't heard any other names, so um, for what it's worth, I haven't heard any other names. But, you know, um, 
it does feel like they zeroed in on on Rick Tockett, right? I, there's familiarity there. And look, Tockett might be a good coach. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't think he's as, like, one thing I really don't like is people using a win-loss record from a coach who coached in no. Tampa Bay when their management group, like before their management group got really, really good, and Arizona when their management group was literally the worst. Um, you know, I don't know that you can hold a ton of that against Rick Tockett, personally. I don't think that's a fair way to judge his body of work. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people I know who in the game, uh, think he's a pretty good head coach. We'll see. Um, you know, I think he's going to have success here off the hop because the Canucks have a paper soft schedule, like a three ply pa- toilet paper soft schedule over the balance of the season. So I would expect this team to win some games here. And I would expect them to win some low scoring games because that's inevitably what's going to happen when you're both sixth in shooting percentage and 32nd by save percentage is those numbers are going to veer toward the middle. Uh, that might look like he's had inordinate success. I just hope this organization doesn't buy into it, which is sort of what the Boudreaux thing, like when I come back and think about Boudreaux's Canucks tenure, like one thing that bothers me is the organization watched what happened in the, for, to the Bruce There It Is Canucks down the stretch last season and said the right things about not buying it. And then at the end of the day, they still like were like, well, what, what does this team look like if we bring in some penalty-killing experts and signed Lazar and Mikheyev? And let's keep the group together. They extend JT Miller. And, you know, actions speak louder than words. Like, they can say that they didn't buy it and that it was all the goaltending and that they thought it was unstructured and they thought the defensive play was abysmal. Um, and they'd be right, but you have to act on what you're saying for me to believe you really see it that way. You know, like it feels to me like at the end of the day, they didn't buy what they were seeing from the coach, but they bought it from the team. And my sort of take on it always was the opposite. Like Bruce was such a brute breath of fresh air that it worked despite the fact that the team was still worlds away, evidently provided that they didn't have the best goaltending in the NHL. What do you make of the meeting schedule, Harm? I'll start with you. Just the fact that I think uh, I think Jim said it was four weeks ago. Patrick said it was six weeks ago, the initial meeting. And then they met again a couple of weeks ago, and they just weren't happy with where it was going. And particularly as it related to the younger players who, in the case of Bud Colson and Hoaglander, were already long since been sent down to Abbotsford. Um, you know, the, the bottom six on this team is just, Awful, right? Like you look around here and you see, you know, Studnika and and um, Will. You don't Lockwood. have time for Studnika. I got time for Studnika. No, no. I like. I got time he, for Studnika. I got time for Dakota Joshua. I think yeah. they could be parts of a decent fourth line. Curtis Lazar is was legitimately really good in Boston a year ago. He hasn't been great for this team, but he was legitimately so good in, on a good team a year ago. Um, yeah, I'm just not seeing anything from that bottom six whatsoever. I think their fourth line's fine. They just don't have a third line, and you're like they've had to have Sheldon Dry center the third line. But they don't have a third line. They don't have a third line because they screwed up on the evaluation of where JT Miller should be playing. And two players who have offensive upside in Pod Colson and Hoaglander have been sent down. You know, and you couple that with the Pearson injury if he's actually a third liner. But what they're what they're icing is not a legitimate third line. No, no. Do you think we see I, I, a couple theories for you? But t- just wonder. take me to the meeting, though. Take take me to the meeting, and whether or not you think that. Because see, for me, when I see that, when I hear that, I think Bruce had a chance, but I don't believe he had a chance. I don't think he had a chance. No, 
I, I think they, honestly, in the summer, around the offseason, I already sort of felt that, like, I, I don't know, it just, the vibes you got, it was just, you could tell that management wasn't sold on Boudreaux at all. You, could, you just kind of knew that he wasn't their guy. And, I mean, they can talk about having meetings and pointing things out that they wanted him to fix and whatnot. I mean, we saw how pointed the criticism was and how early it came. And whether it was justified or not, um, I don't know. I, I, I just never, never at any point, even last season, felt that this Boudreaux is their guy. I don't think there's... Look, is there a world where he could have, I don't know, maybe delayed the inevitable? Maybe. I, I, I don't know. But all along, it felt like this was going to be the conclusion unless they had this season somehow gone on a... Miracle, miracle run, made the playoffs, and, and all that kind of stuff, which obviously obviously didn't happen. Yeah, that would have been the only thing. I, I, and like I said, there were times when Alvin alluded to that, that this is where they wanted to go. This has been in the works for a period of time. A couple of times he let that slip. Well, I mean, Rutherford really said he'd been talking to... Well, it's all about been talking guys. To, well, boys, thing. Sorry, I, I just want to say, like, one thing I want to touch on is that press conference began with Alvin saying, today I made the decision to fire Bruce Boudreaux. Yeah, I know. And it was like everything after that was always going to feel forced. Like you were always asking me to take the medicine with a spoonful of sugar from there on in. Just because we know you didn't make the decision this morning. Like we know that. That's like there's no way to have anyone believe that. There's no way that that's credible. And when you start, once the availability started like that, it was just going to be very difficult, I think, for us to be like, okay, this is a, you know, a, a reckoning in which the organization is going to seek to turn the page and restore the, the sense of integrity and credibility that's been rattled as a result of the week, uh, re, uh, the events of this past week. Um, you know, and then Rick Tockett a little bit later on, I talked to the Sedin twins yesterday. It's like, well, that would be pretty weird if you hadn't already been signed, sealed, delivered. You know, it's just like. Yeah, there was a lot of that today where that but, opening statement got contradicted repeatedly. But maybe that seems like a little thing, but I don't think it's a little thing, particularly because that's the prepared portion of the availability. You know, like you have to be spinning a narrative that's at least internally coherent, surely. If you're going to build the trust that this management group's going to need as they go through and chart whatever plan or whatever course they feel is necessary to get this team back on track. The other thing is we again saw mixed messaging, right? Alvin mentioned pretty close off to the top that talk had asked him if it was going to be a quick fix and Alvin responded, no, which is sensible. It's what we've all been saying, but then it's like just around a week ago, Drancy, when you asked about, well, why do you sort of believe in this this idea of a, of a quick fix? And, and Rutherford asked you to name the timeline, and you said, okay, three years. And he, Rutherford almost seemed to scoff when he was like, three years? Like, he, he almost seemed to suggest that, that three years was generous in order to be able to turn things around. So it's like, which one, which one is it? And it again goes to even in that press conference them at certain points saying the problem isn't with the core, it's just with the surrounding pieces, but then later saying this group needs ma major surgery. Um, it's like they've draw it's like they've left themselves an out to where if this short-term thing doesn't work out, 
they can later pivot and say, well, we never promised a quick fix in the first place. First place. We said it was going to take time. We said we needed major surgery when all their actions and risk-taking uh, to this point has suggested otherwise and, and suggested that, they've, that they want and believe in the idea of a quicker fix. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So let's pivot and talk Rick Tockett now and what our expectations are of him uh, as a coach and the practical effects he'll have on the roster. Now we understand that you know, the next number of games here are going to be um, really soft. Like schedule-wise, this sets up for them to have some success. It'll never be enough for them to get into the playoffs. So we're looking at a worst-case scenario where you get a new coach bump and you have a soft schedule, and that's going to take them out of the bottom five sweepstakes and put them right in the mushy middle again. Like, But beyond the numbers and the points and, and the standings aspect of it all, you know, I asked questions about the impact he could have on Oliver ekman Larson. Given the fact that reports were they didn't get along, he said it was overblown. Um, you know, I've been left to, led to believe that one of their priorities in Talkit was the guy who can hold JT Miller accountable and get more out of him. And obviously, that's not the only reason, but I think that is believed to be something he can bring. Um, and then we, we've also got structural issues like how bad this team is defensively. Talkit himself talked about puck management and the penalty kill, which is a disaster. And hopefully, Adam Foote can help in that regard, or maybe Sergey Gonchar can help in that regard. Gonchar, meanwhile, is a part-time consultant. I think he's got a full-time job, but it's to consult. He's not going to be here on a regular basis. So um, what impact do we think this is going to have practically beyond the bump? Jess, you want to start or should I go? You go, because I'm uh, having issues with the room. It's kicked me out, and I need to restart the app. Okay, no worries. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right off the bat, in terms of um, – like what he said in terms of his philosophy, what he wants to bring in for starters. I mean, I think he had some really good, good thoughts when the idea of his relationship and potential impact on JT Miller got brought up, right? The first thing talk had said was he plays too many minutes. And so it looks like he's pacing himself, right? Like, doesn't that sum it up that he plays too much? I mean, last season he was among the forward leaders in ice time and you can tell that he picks his spots for when to kind of go all out. And we know that JT is a different player when you use him in shorter bursts and when he's in a position where he is physically engaged, he is skating hard, whereas he's playing 22, 23 minutes a night. So I liked the understanding, you know, right off the bat that he's got to cut his minutes. And when he talked about penalty killing philosophy, I think it's pretty clear that Miller's, you know, it, it talk, it seems, seemed to suggest that he wasn't going to lean on his top guys like Miller, Patterson and Hughes, to really kill penalties, which as it pertains to Miller, I think, again, is a positive. Also talked about, look, I get when players get emotional, but that's not an excuse to, for example, stop back checking. Again, I I like hearing him sort of say that. So I do think that talk is going to be able to have, you know, hopefully a positive impact on Miller, get more out of him, build that relationship. But in the bigger grand scheme of things, when I look at his track record in Arizona, and like Jantz said, I don't think just the straight up wins losses um, record and pouring over that is fair and judging him. 
But when you look at that setup and that scene overall, he didn't move the needle in a significant way for positive or negative purposes. When you look at, for example, I went through year year by year, 2017-18 season all the way to 2021, and looked at how they performed relative to, for example, what our colleague um, Dom Lushijan projected out of the Coyotes just as a paper roster. And it was always more or less in line with uh, with what you would have thought out of, out of the team. They were, they were consistently a club that, you know, they were emerging. Like when Rocket, when Talkit first took over after um, after Dave Tippett, they were this sort of like bottom, bottom feeder team that was bottom three in the NHL. And it was at that point where they were like, okay, let's accelerate. They brought in Stefan, uh, Stefan, they brought in Ranta. They'd made a lot of upgrades, they had young players coming. And again, it was just sort of a team that more or less performed to expectation. Um, so in the big picture, I don't look at him as this like, you know, savior that's going to suddenly squeeze out a ton of results, right? Especially when you consider that Boudreaux, you're starting at a baseline that's pretty high, right? In terms of the regular season results that Boudreaux has been able to establish in his career. So right off, right off the hop, I, I, I still think you're going to need way more in terms of what you do with the personnel to sort of get back on the right track. What's, um, what kind of impact? Sorry, one, one, what, one, real quick though. What kind okay. of impact do you think he's going to have initially? Like, obviously there was, there was a connection between Bruce and the players, not enough to get more out of them because it just collectively the, the team isn't good. But, you know, normally players understand that this is part of the business, right? Um, as much as there was an emotional attachment, there was a weight that needed to be lifted. But this is different. And the players admitted this was different because of how it was handled. So do you think there'll be some residual effects or different levels of buy-in initially with the new head coach? Or is it just you, you revert back to business because, you know, if you screw around, you know, the door's right there. When when Talkit sort of comes in, it's like a blank slate. And we know how much first impressions matter for players. And forget the team at a certain point. At an individual level, level for these players – they still have future opportunities that they need to play for to establish themselves as, okay, I need to, I need to be a guy that can play middle six. I want to be a guy that can penalty kill. I want to be a guy that can play on the second unit power play. You have so many different roles that you can, that are now sort of up for grabs. And all of these first impressions are so important in in establishing how much a coach can trust you, his perception of your attitude, his perception of your personality. And we know there's going to be significant roster turnover as well. So if you want to be part of the solution, you've you've got to show that you've got something to add to talk it. And even beyond that, guys have to play for contracts. There are a lot of expiring deals uh, on the books, whether it's even for this season or, um, or beyond. So I just think you're at a point where, yeah, I think obviously the players are, are going to be down and it's going to be tough emotionally. But at a certain point, you're kind of going to, as a player, going to be in self-preservation mode and going like, all right, like I don't have too much time to dwell on this. I got to make sure I leave a positive impact on this new coach so that I actually get minutes, so that I actually get ice time, so I get opportunities to score points, so that I get a new contract. So a couple predictions, a couple predictions. These, are, these aren't like my usual predictions where take them to the bank. <laughs> um, th- these, are, these are like things I'm curious to see. Practice tomorrow, we're going to see Miller at center, right? For sure. We got to. We have to. Talkit has to take a look at that. They have to take a look at that with Talkit uh, coaching, right? As they said, there have been players who have struggled. 
Uh, we need to see if they'll continue to struggle with the coach who we believe in. Um, I mean, that was that's me paraphrasing. They didn't say that, but you know what? That's what they meant. Uh, I think we have to see Talkett in the middle, or sorry, <laughs> we have to see Talkett put Miller in the middle, and we have to see what that looks like as Talkett's systems are installed. I think it's crucial that this club have a sense of what that looks like in the event that Bo Horvat is traded. They need to know. I think we'll see that tomorrow. One thing I'm curious to see, a little bit less certain, but I'm curious to see, is do we see Quinn Hughes on the right side again? You know? Oh, good one. I wonder how much that was a Bruce idea versus a management idea uh, during the offseason, something that they wanted to see. Me and Harmon both agreed on what it looked like. We thought Quinn Hughes looked devilishly uncomfortable on the on the right side. I, I thought it neutered all the things that make him most special. Uh, I was pretty consistent about, about that view. Um, so, you know, I don't like it. I don't think it's going to be like, it's one of those things where I think he can figure it out, but I also think you're going to be diminishing one of your best players because so much of what he does that's special uh, off the rush in terms of the, the way that he skates through the neutral zone, in terms of the way that he play makes off that sort of half wall high part of the, uh, the point on that left side, um, you know, and because I don't think he's. I don't think his threat as a shooter is necessarily his best attribute. I think all of that stuff plays better off his strong side, but I wonder if we see the new coach go back to that and give management a chance to evaluate Hughes on the right side as a partial answer to this club's biggest looming roster gap over he the might, balance of this season. I, and we've talked about this in the, in the uh, press box during games. I think, I think Quinn Hughes needs a spark. Right, like he hasn't been a bad player, but I think he took a massive step a year ago, and I think he's taken a slight step back this year. I just don't see that level of control in his game. That just that dynamic skating. I don't see what I've seen in the past in his game. Again, not suggesting he's playing poorly, especially relative to the rest of that defense. But there, there hasn't been a step taken this year, and maybe a switch to the right side, even briefly, might give him a new spark. Um, and then one last thing is, I expect there to be a talk at bump. At no the question. end of the day, yeah. at the end of the day, this team, um, they're not good, but they're not this bad and their schedule is cake. And I think it's going to have more to do with the <laughs> schedule than it will have anything to do with talk it, but they've really put him in a position to succeed. And you're, you know, I didn't ask this at the presser, but I was thinking about it. Like if Demko returns to practice tomorrow, it's just going to be like, Oh man. They have really stacked the decks to make this guy look good here uh, 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 off the off the hop. Um, but you know, I, I think I think the I think Talkett's coming into a very favorable environment to have a big impact in terms of wins and losses. Um, and you know, I, I don't you know how I think about that and whether I think that's self defeating, but I think that's going to happen. Harm. Yeah, I tend to, uh, you know, I tend to kind of agree there, especially because given the way, like, the Canucks aren't a good team, but they've also under, I think they've underperformed their their talent level this season. Obviously, had things go against some individual players that haven't played up to their up to their ability level, and that market correction is obviously going to help a lot. The one thing that is interesting that I sort of will wonder about is Tarkett's obviously going to come in, and it's not necessarily that. 
there's going to be massive differences systems wise because teams just don't play radically different X's and O's wise, but there is going to be a big adjustment in terms of mindset and philosophy in terms of the things that he asks his players to do at the offensive blue line, for example, um, in the defensive end, how much they chase the puck, all of those things. So I do wonder when you're committing, when you're making an adjustment to play a more defensive style and really tighten things up and you're asking a club to sort of really be mindful of all of these details, does that take time to get used to it all? Um, especially because if you remember talk, it's, um, first, uh, first season behind the bench in Arizona, they had a historically bad start, um, from what I, what I remember. And then they, in the second half was when they like really started to pick it up, even though it was, um, it was an, uh, um, overall a losing season, but they were awful out of the gate. Um, so again, I'm hoping that they, or sorry, I'm expecting that given the schedule and, and given, some of the individual players that you'll probably be, be able to get more out of like Miller, like Demko eventually returning um, that there will be, you know, you'll, you'll see more wins um, along the way here initially. But uh, I mean, on the other side, if you're on team tank, there's at least some hope. You think there's some hope if you're on team tank? I think that horse has le- left the barn, my friend. I mean, not, not in the sense of bumps inevitable. Well, not in the sense of they're going to be in the Bedard sweepstakes, because we all know at this point they're not, but in the sense of could they pick up, let's say, the sixth overall pick instead of picking 11th or 12th? Like, I'm still, even if, you, even if you're not realistically in contention for Bedard or even the top three guys, even the top four guys, you still want to finish as low as possible, right? I, I, think, I think they're going to at least pass the Philadelphia Flyers. At, I agree. At least pass the Philadelphia Flyers. And then I do think one of that Nashville, St. Louis, Buffalo tier is possible. Yeah, see, I'm with you in terms of Philadelphia. I hope it doesn't get to that next tier where you mentioned those teams. What do we know in terms of the details around the Oliver ekman Larson situation with talking in Arizona? Again, he downplayed it today, said it was totally overblown, feels he's got a good relationship with him. But, you know, what I've read isn't necessarily good. Dramser, you, you're probably a little no, bit yeah, plugged no, in there. What, they're what not, tell they're us? not. That, the oil and water. Absolute oil and water. I think he was being polite about it. So what today. happens to a player that is already struggling really, really badly now? I, I, I don't have the answer for you. That's going to be a fascinating situation to watch unfold. JT Miller. So I, another I, one thing I will say, I, I wonder if it'll be any different just because when, when like, not different in the sense that all of a sudden it's going to work out, but different in the, just in the sense that when Talkit was head coach in Arizona, OEL was their captain, right? He was their guy. He was expected to be the best defenseman. He was expected to be the best player, frankly. So I wonder how much of pushing him, OEL, was just the idea of, like, this is this guy's the face of the franchise. I have certain when you're when you're the face of the franchise, I need to push this guy to a certain level. And he, you know, especially from a leadership aspect. Whereas now that he's, you know, OEL is clearly not really one of the core players. Um, you'd hope anyway that it's not as big of a problem. Again, I don't think that they have a great relationship. Uh, but your talk it's not in a position now 
where he all of a sudden needs OEL to be his best defenseman or, or that he, he's leaning on him to be a captain, right? So a couple other names I want to throw out to both you guys. Uh, JT Miller, I asked about it today. Uh, specifically, I mean, this is a guy that has underperformed this year. He's got his money. He's underperforming big time. Another moment again against Edmonton. The empty net puck hadn't even gone in. He was part of the turnover machine that gave up the puck, and he casually skated back to the bench. And he didn't have a play to make on the back check. Nonetheless, it was a bad look in that moment, given all the emotions of the building. Um, these are two men that think alike, and we're talking about the political spectrum, right? And not that it matters who you vote for. However, they think alike. They're, they're you know, they, they may be similarly wired off the ice, right? And can talk about other things in a similar vein. Um, do all those things add up? Could he get more out of JT Miller? If he plays him on the wing, JT Miller is a very, very good top of the lineup winger. Okay, so if he plays him on the the wing, the question is effort level has still been bad. Well, no, I mean, I think I think we're probably overreacting to like from a pure evaluation perform uh, perspective, like from a pure evaluation perspective in terms of value provided. I think we're overreacting to the moments of frustration that Miller is having in evaluating his performance. He's been, he's been good in terms of his defensive value on the wing this season. He's been a legitimate two-way, probably not driver, but a legitimate two-way top of the lineup option for the Canucks when he's played the wing all season long. The other stuff, you know, and, and I mean, it was one thing like, in a remarkable season, it's and and considering how remarkable the last week has been, it's sort of easy to gloss over the fact that a lot of pointed questions were asked about JT Miller during the availability today, and management and the coach, the new incoming coach, while not taking direct shots, accepted the premise of each one, right? And all of a sudden, they were talking about things like line changes, they were talking about things like puck management, you know, when, when a puck is thrown into the middle of the ice, they were talking about things like managing emotion, back checking, uh, pacing oneself. I mean, it was a pretty remarkable series of comments that were either directed at JT Miller or in general during a conversation about JT Miller that felt weighty. Um, you know, it's hard to overstate just how odd that was considering that we're only what four and a half months removed from him signing a $56 million contract that hasn't even kicked in yet. Connor Garland played very well for Tockett in Arizona. He's a guy that's been buried in terms of, you know, no PP one time generally in the bottom six, like might they get a little more out of Connor Garland? Connor Hopefully good. they're, they're going to, they're, they're going to get more out of Connor Garland because he's shooting 7% at five on five when he's like a, what, 11% career shooter at five on five. And his on ice shooting clip is in the tank as well. And he's a good playmaker. Like there's no reason why Connor Garland should be this ineffectual as a five on five player. He's way better than this. Like he's way better than this. For, for a variety of reasons. I still think that the main reason that Garland has struggled is that there's really only been one guy who who has been able to consistently tie play together and drive things five on five this season. And it's Elias Pettersson and Connor Garland spent 50 minutes of five on five ice time with Elias Pettersson. 
I don't think that's like, I'm not advocating for them to play together. My guess is, is if they're playing together that infrequently and, and nothing has really worked for this team long term over the course of the season, there's, there's a reason for it. But uh, nonetheless, I sort of look at Connor Garland as a guy whose value is distressed, but who remains far better than the market recognizes at the moment and is likely to play better over the balance of the season, regardless of the circumstances around him. You heard that harm? Yeah, I'd agree with that, especially because he's someone who, when I talked to him at the end of last season and he was talking about how difficult the adjustment was initially with the trade, said he is such a routine sort of person. He really banks on familiarity and things changing around him aren't, um, and, and sort of new experiences aren't necessarily what helps him find his rhythm just in general. And so finding that familiarity again with Talkit, um, who Garland, w- like with the lack of talent they, that they had on Arizona, Garland was his best forward and he was leaned on a lot. And so I think that familiarity will help him again too, especially because I don't know that, I, I don't think that Garland and Boudreaux were, you know, necessarily that they were the best fit together. And from that perspective, I, I think he'll, he'll, he's a player that I look to as I think his production is going to pick up relative to where it's been in the first half. All right, so, guys, uh, should we go to the stage? Yeah, I was going to say, if you, if you get in before eight o'clock, we'll make sure we take your calls. Uh, I think we've got, uh, how many we've got on the stage? Three or four that we are on the three. stage now. So yeah, yeah four so minutes let's to raise more. your hand. Anyone who raises their hand before nine, we'll, uh, we'll make sure we get to your call, but we'll start with, Chet, one of my favorite 650 inbox texters and always has good takes. Chet, what's going on? Hey, how's it going? Uh, You know what? Here's the thing is like I spent last two weeks writing down some takes. I got my piece of paper here. Uh, I'm just going to throw them out. Let's go. Uh, No, no, they're gone because they're all uh, far ranging, deep thinking parts about the team and uh you know no 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 it's it just it doesn't matter anymore the integrity of the team is the most important thing uh earlier this year like i would have said like how can you possibly support the chicago blackhawks if this is like how the team is reacting around you and i gotta i gotta stick with my guns i'm gonna have to quit watching the team for the rest of the year it's gonna be tough but i did it in 98 i can do it now um, I thought I do have two small takes. I thought it was really unfortunate in the Boudreaux, like waving goodbye to the crowd thing that JT Miller had to stand up and be in it. I thought that was kind of, uh, not the best look. And, uh, I'm on the train now where I don't want to see the Canucks finish like ninth or 10th worst in the league. And when Connor Bedard, because I don't think they deserve to be rewarded for the way that they are acting now. I mean, that's basically it. Wow. wow. Thanks, Chet. That is, uh, that is a Canucks fan who is in one. Chet, a huge Canucks fan, a regular 650 listener, texts in often, always has good takes, always has funny things to say in one in terms of the Canucks. Um, I think Miller was taking it all in on the on the bench with with uh, the chance there. I know the players seemed a little confused. Like, should they salute him? What should they do? There was a it was a very slow departure from the ice for Canucks players in general last night. Understandably, 
Uh, you know, none of them have experienced anything like that before. None of them probably ever will, which again speaks to why it was so remarkable, why it was so out of the ordinary. Uh, overall, in terms of the Canucks and getting Bedard, and, you know, I, I mean, I do think we've reached a point where the last week's events have rattled confidence in this new management team and in this organization to the point where, you know, not not unlike when the Oilers won the draft lottery and got McDavid, it's like day one, wow, they got this generational talent. What a what a break of the lottery balls. Day two, what do they have to do to make sure it's not wasted? Right? Like that I I do think we're at the point where that's gonna be the day two story if the Canucks were to win the draft lottery would be can they turn this around quickly enough? Do they have the right people? And and that's an amazing place to be at, considering the optimism that surrounded this franchise as recently as what, six and a half like Six and a half months ago when they won the Kuzmenko Derby, if you'd told me it would unfold like this, I would have been jaw-dropped, stunned. Well, there's just a consumer confidence crisis, right? I think that's – we're at the point now where it's as if the organization almost does and operates in the exact opposite way that the fan base wants them to, right? It's like, we all want to rebuild. Okay, let's retool again, right? It's – we're just at a point now where the fan base, especially like seeing all the all the reaction online and how disappointed fans are right now. I, I've actually, in all my time covering the team, I don't think I've seen the the market that aligned in its in its sort of negativity against the organization itself, which is saying a lot considering again where we were just thirteen months ago. Or, or less, seven months. All right, we're uh, we've got five people up on the stage. These are going to be the five callers that we take. So this is uh, this is it for us in terms of callers. Yeah, if, uh, if you put your hand up now, I may not get to you. It'll depend on my mood after we go through these five. <laughs> but um, here's Jakob. Jakob, we got you. Hey guys, uh, are you guys able to hear me just fine? We can. Thank you so much, Jakob. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on again. So before I start uh, with my opinions, actually, I also wrote them down. So thanks, Chet, for the idea, actually, so I don't forget. Uh, you know, <laughs> I got I got to give you guys credit. Uh, you guys uh, asked a lot of hard questions in the last couple of uh, press conferences. And, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people don't really talk about that as much, but uh, I do. So I, I, I know it's I'm just a random guy on the Internet, but uh, I do appreciate it. And uh, I thought it definitely made some uh, made them sweat a little bit, uh, which was uh, really nice to see. So uh, just that right off the bat with that. Now, now I'm not going to raise your egos anymore. Here we go. So, <laughs> all right. So uh, I have a few things to mention. So first of all, you know, if if the Horvat trade that happens, if it's a huge win, let's just say it's not going to happen. Let's just say, though, they get Shane Wright or something from it. Let's just say it's a huge win. I, I don't think anybody, no offense, is going to be talking about the Bruce drama anymore. I think it's going to be it, it, like this, this, this management needs wins. And if they get a huge win with some of these trades, with e- either if it's Kuzmenko or Horvat, I think people are going to have pretty short memories, at least you know, at least a lot more lenient than what, what they're they're feeling right now, because obviously it was a complete gong show and embarrassment uh, with how they treated Bruce. And so that's my first thing. 
Second thing uh, I wanted to mention about the bottom six, uh, sorry, Durant, uh, we probably have the worst bottom six in the NHL. I, I would say <laughs> it's uh, I would say it's probably as bad as Arizona's, if not worse. Um, so I, I, I really, I really <laughs> disagree with with you on some. I'm not saying I don't like some of the guys, like as people. Obviously, Josh was an amazing individual, Lazar, but I just, I just don't see the vision uh, maybe as much. And uh, and my last take here. Um, you know, actually, I have two two more small takes. So the, the first one is I'm surprised they did the Rutherford Alvin uh, conference kind of at the same time as the Talkit one. I thought maybe they would just have that one separate, and then you have questions just for Talkit after. But it was so long. I guess it's fine. And then uh, my second and final take here is, uh, you know, uh, you know how the schedule is getting really easy. I think we're also going to see a lot of inflated you know, stats because of it as well. So, you know, a lot of people are, are, are you know, we, this team's already a pretty good offensive team. I would not be surprised if we get some of these, you know, big bounce backs and, and a lot of these players just because you're going to be facing Chicago now and Arizona now and instead of, you know, Boston Bruins, for example. So uh, that's it. That's all I really got to say. And uh, yeah, cheers. Thanks, Jacob. Um, one thing I got to say about Rutherford and Alvin, well, especially Rutherford, right? Because Rutherford's now spent, what, 90 minutes up on a dais over the course of a week in which his organization has been embattled on a number of fronts. You, you can't say he hasn't been available, right? Finally, yeah, for sure. Uh, you can't say you can't say Rutherford hasn't worn this and been out front and been willing to exchange punches and counterpunch back, whether whether you've agreed with him or not, uh, credit to him for that. And, and Alvin... Um, you know, he hadn't been as out front as, as I think he needs to be going forward as the general manager of this team, but he was today. And, and I thought, I thought toward the end of that availability, when he started talking about his vision for the day to day habits, it was the best that I've seen him perform in a, in a high intensity public setting like that as a speaker. I he felt got like louder. He, he got louder and more intense. Like you could tell that he, he had wanted to make a point urgently. Yeah. Like he, he wasn't, he's never been comfortable to this point, right. With all the cameras around him, there's just not been anything he's been exposed to, but here he kind of, I don't want to say pushed back, but he was intense towards the end of that. He wanted it. You're right. He wanted to make an urgent point. But I think, I think it's because he finally got to talk about something where he wasn't guarded. And all of a sudden you began to understand I begun I began to understand a little bit more like who this guy is like his his you know passion for process his view on how these little things extrapolate and matter um you know I thought that was a pretty interesting window into the man and and sometimes I do think you need to be willing to be less guarded in general like let me give you an example from the presser Asked by you, Farhan, right at the end, would you give Bo Horvat's agent permission to chat with other teams about an extension? For me, there's one right answer to that question. And it's, you know, until we've reached an agreement to trade Bo Horvat, and I'm not saying we're going to, but until that's happened, it's not a consideration. Right? Because you have to have a deal in place, and then it's like, and you can talk extension with him. And that affects the price like so. Agreed? Agreed. Okay, fine. But it's like, it's not even a, it's not even relevant until you've agreed to. So, you know, right now, Bull Horvat's a Canuck. Until we've reached 
an agreement on it on, on a trade, it's not even a consideration. That, that's all you have to say. That's the answer. And that feels more honest and feels more insightful to fans without actually telling them anything than the that's a matter for me to discuss with his agent. Like, not really. It's actually a matter for you to discuss with another team in trade talks with him should this end up going down that route. That That's an example of where, like, I still felt like he was just too guarded. When he wasn't guarded, I actually thought he was at his, his most effective. And as far as uh, separating them in the press conference, that's not on brand for this organization. They don't want to deal with the mess. They want to have something to to take it forward. They want the conversation to immediately move forward, um, what, especially if ownership is involved in it. Like when they got rid of Jim, Stan Smuel was right there to take the arrows. He was going to be the guy, even though it only lasted four days. But they always, always want to spin it forward. Now, again, in fairness to Jim, he did answer all those questions, but it makes it a lot easier if half the questions are about what's next as opposed to what they may have messed up to this point. Hey, by the way, I'm getting a lot of pushback on my uh, I like Lazard, Joshua, and Stanika stuff. Like, I'm I, I'm telling you, I think there's something there with all three guys. There hasn't been to this point, but I, I legitimately yeah, but think... Ha- half of them are masquerading as third-liners when they should be fourth-liners. All of them. Well, uh, so, I mean, I'm not even sure that that's necessarily always going to be the case with Stanika and Joshua. Like, I think Lazard is, should be on your fourth line. But I don't know that Dakota Joshua and Studnika can't get to a higher level considering their age, considering some of the higher skill plays they can make, considering what we've said. Like, at the end of the day, they're big, fast, they work hard, their work rate's high. You know, when 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 Rick Tockett says we're going to have to find out if we have some other guys who can PK, like, for me, the first guy I think of is Dakota Joshua. So I'm not necessarily sold on there being nothing there with those two. And I'm sorry, I'm, I, I, I know I'm always so positive about the Canucks, but I genuinely just believe that there might be something there with those, uh, with those two players. Sorry, I'm going to write they're, this they're, down. You were generally says, so positive about the Canucks. Says, All right. says Air S, there are no shawlers, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice callback. All right. Um, I'm going to invite, I, I'm going to say Levi H, but once, our um, software admits you to this. Oh man, didn't work. How about, how about Tarek? He was on here before. Yeah. All right. Well, I like to go in order, so I'm going to do Jeremy, okay. and then we'll go to Tarek. But um, but Levi, if you put your hand back up, I will invite you back up to the stage. Oh man, we're at that part of the. Do you want to? You want to try calling someone up from the queue because it doesn't seem to be working for me. I've now cannibalized both Jeremy and. Oh, there we go. Levi's up here. Levi, do you hear me? Hey, buds. Hey, buds. How are you? All right. All right. Obligatory. Can you hear me? First time, long time. (laughs) Shoot from the hip, my friend. All right. Let's go. All right. So I don't always agree uh, with Drance, but I actually think uh, Joshua, Lazar, and Stadnika are, they're actually pretty consistent. I mean, they're not, they're not going to ring the bell that often, but they're noticeable. So, so we'll start off with that, I guess, but. A uh, couple of questions, and I'll I'll just kind of back off and, and see what you guys have to say. But why hire a replacement this season? That'd be the first question. And then, what is your guys's confidence that this management group doesn't screw up Horvat, Kuzmenko, and all of those pending situations? 
Thank you, Levi. Good questions. Um, All right. Harmon, why don't you take the confidence about the deadline question? And then Farhan, I'll I'll let you take the first of the two questions, which I always forget midway through. But um, I think it was about, uh, what was it about? Do you remember, Farhan? The first question? Yeah, the first one. I was waiting for you to handle it. Uh, I'm sorry. I always forget them. Um, anyway, let's let's talk about the let's talk about the confidence that this management group nails the deadline. Harmon, where are you at with that? Oh, the other one was about whether it made sense to replace Bruce Boudreau, considering the the club's interest in losing games over the balance. Anyway, Harmon, handle the first one, and then Farhan and I'll tackle the second. Yeah, um, right off the bat, I mean it's not encouraging seeing all the uh, conversations about resigning Guzmanco because I think we're you know, we're in agreement, I think, the three of us, that they're probably better off looking to deal him um, at the deadline, especially considering the value that he could have given his small cap hit and how many contenders don't really have the, uh, may not have the flexibility to take a swing at a higher cap hit winger like a Tarasenko, for example. So um, that's concerning. I'm also curious on Kuzmenko to see if Rick Talk comes in and as we expect him to kind of implement some more defensive-minded approach, more defensive-minded philosophy, less less risk, even more dump and chase. I wonder if we're going to see some of these players' production just in general slide a bit. Uh, kind of like when Travis Green at the start of last season finally realized, like, in the 2021 campaign, the all-Canadian division, the Canucks were still playing this aggressive, high-tempo four-check and, and they were allowing way too much defensively, way too much off the rush. So going in, into the start of last season, I think Travis clearly tightened things up. And we saw how much it hurt players' offensive creativity. Um, it felt like all they were doing was generating shots from the point, And we saw players' production fall. And the concern I have here is right now, Kuzmenko's at a 74-point pace. The rate he's operating at. But is he still a 70-ish point guy under Rick Tockett? Are those numbers potentially inflated based off of how kind of loosey-goosey the Canucks have been playing before? Especially because you don't have a long track record or sample size to know, is this legit? Is this a bit of an outlier? Where, where, do, where does this production sort of lie in maybe a different context? So that has me concerned right off the bat, especially because I think just in general, I think the last thing this team needs is another high-priced winger. Um, where they need to actually find more roster efficiencies, especially because if you trade Bo, Bo Horvat, you're going to have now all of a sudden a huge hole down the middle. You're, you still have all your holes on the back end. Um, so that's concerning to me so far. Don't have a lot of confidence with how they're with with how they're managing Kuzmenko's future right now, um, especially when you consider you know some of the numbers thrown out in terms of oh six million plus on a potential bridge uh, that some have speculated, um, and then on Horvat. We'll see. I mean, I'm not sure yet where the market's going to be at. Um, I hope that um, they don't sort of pigeonhole themselves into this idea of we need players that can help us now um, and forego, for example, you know, first round uh, a first round pick as a, as a part of a package. So um, we'll see on Horvat, but um, not not very confident on Kuzmenko right now. All right, let me uh, let me let me throw these at you. Harmon, assign a letter grade to the following hypotheticals in terms of the Canucks deadline performance. 
Luke Shen returns the second round pick. Yeah, it's a solid B plus. Luke Shen returns a first and a fifth. First and a fifth? That's that's an A. A. Uh, Bo Horvat returns, and and I'm not saying like these players, like just like imagine yeah. a comparable package, okay? Bo Horvat to Columbus with an extension agreed to for Sillinger, Peak, and Roslovic. Sillinger, Peak, and Roslovic. Uh, Peak's not Peak's not very good, is he? I like him, but I, like but him? I think he's like a tweener RD. Like I like him, like I like Ethan Bear. Right, and he's and he's got that two point seven five million dollar cap it, right? Yeah. Okay, I like Sillinger. I think, I think he's a little more physical. I think he could be a little bit more of a matchup guy than Bear, personally. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be like, yeah, I, I I'd say out of that package, I'd like Sillinger. Um, I I don't know. I'm I'm not the biggest Roslovic guy. Um, I don't know. I, I'd probably say C plus ish on something like that. Yep. Um. Kuzmenko extended at a team-friendly clip, let's say four times four five, which is no way, but like let's just let's grade it out as a as a comparable thing. Yeah, the contract's fine in a vacuum, but to me that's still, you know, C minus D because yeah. I again Agreed. considering what you could get from him at the deadline and all that. Well, this is this is what I was I was talking to someone about this about the prospect of a Bo Horvat trade. It's like you don't have to win it for it to be a good move. Like the bar to clear to win a move where you're also ducking, extending a guy who's his age for a lot, uh, a big amount of money is like, is so high, right? Like Jeff Skinner for a second in Cliff Pooh is like one of the best trades the last 10 years. And and they roundly lost that trade. The Carolina hurricanes did, but by ducking the Skinner commitment, right? You're, you're, you still win. It's still a huge, huge win. Just like even a even a bad JT Miller package at the deadline last year would have been way way better than the way it actually played out for this team, right? So that's sort of a low bar for me. Like Horvat, you don't. Hey, let me give you another example: Kessler for Benino, McCann, Spiza, right? Like it's not even a it's not a great trade, but it was such a huge huge win, particularly if the Canucks hadn't frittered away into Brandon Sutter and, and Eric Branson, right? Um. All right, and a Kuzmenko trade for not a first, a second and a third for Andre Kuzmenko. How would you grade that? Uh, I still give it a B. Um, you know, I, well, just that they didn't ex- extend it and just took the assets. Like that to me is like, okay, you're selling high on a guy. Finally, it gives me yeah. confidence in your process. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, cool. So that was fun to go through hypotheticals where we agreed to like, you know, pan even a team friendly Kuzmenko deal. And praise even a bad return for Kuzmenko, right? Like it's a really instructive thought process to go through is to like target low and high and, and, and still grade it out. Um, as for the first question, which was the, did it make sense for the Canucks to make a coaching change now? You know, here, here'd be my argument. If you were going to launch a multi-year rebuild, there is no coach you could have had that would have been better to do it in this marketplace than Bruce Boudreaux. Provided, however, that his instructions were were tweaked a bit, right? Like, you know, you have to play the young guys. You're you're teaching here, and if if, if your passion's not for teaching, then we have to get someone in who you can oversee. But we want you to art how this and be like the PR guy. We want you to be the spoonful of sugar 
with that medicine in this market as we bought him out for a couple of years. On some level, I do think that they've lost a guy who could have been a tremendous asset to the tank as much as he would have hated it, just given how much he resonated, how high his Q rating was in this marketplace. Farhan, well, what's your take? Yeah, you know, like I don't think they needed to make the coaching change at this time. I'm not suggesting that uh, Boudreaux performed at a level that he shouldn't have been dismissed, period. But like, why are we doing it now? If you wanted to do it, you do it at the start of the season, force the owner to bite the bullet, or you wait till the end of the season and have a legitimate coaching search. Not some rushed thing that I've interviewed a number of candidates, which we're not necessarily sure of, uh, you know, because we believe they zeroed in. To me, wait until the off season, and you could show process you know, to harm's point. So, and you're not going to get a bump, right? Like they will get a bump now between the schedule and the change and the weight of this situation being lifted. There will be a bump here, which doesn't serve the team well. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure what the upside was. Yeah. Hey, we, uh, we invited Jeremy F to the stage a long time ago and he's just been quietly there because the uh, software glitched out a little bit. Jeremy, can you hear us? Yes, I can guys. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can. You're next up, my friend. What do you want to talk about? Awesome. So I've just got like one comment and um, a couple of uh, questions. So first comment, I've been a long, long time Canucks fan. One of my first memories is watching uh, like the Stan Smeal, Tony Tanti era. <laughs> yeah, um, love it. So been watching for a long time. I don't know that I've ever been as disenchanted with the franchise as I have been the last couple of weeks. It's it's been really tough to watch. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll just sort of leave that at that. Um, so two questions. How big of a misstep do you think it was for the Canucks to prioritize signing Miller coming off a career year and kind of kneecap themselves as far as it um, goes to signing Horvat. Um, and then I've forgotten my second question, but it'll come to me. <laughs> so if you guys want to answer those two questions, uh, I can come up with the second question. Sure. Well, we understand why you'd be disenchanted, Jeremy. Obviously, it's been a really tough slog. I think for us, too, uh, you know, I, I would not have imagined um, this season playing out in this way. Like I was down on this team, probably down more than market. And yet this has stunned me in terms of the way that the wheels have just completely fallen off on so many different levels for the, for the organization. Um, in terms of the misstep on Miller vis-a-vis Horvat, like for me, the misstep isn't, they isn't like me and Farhan disagree with this. I disagree on this. For me, it's not so much that they picked the wrong guy. It's that the club should be aware enough of where they're at in their development cycle to understand that probably both needed to be dealt. Um, you know, in, in my view, I, I, I just don't see a path forward, not because those aren't good players, but because they are, right? Not because they're, you know, I, I just don't see a route to contending in the first half of the, those long-term deals. So why would you have done either? The, to me, that doesn't make sense. Like, it just didn't make sense to do either. And and I don't know why this organization was so dead set on doing one. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to do Bo Horvat if he was going to take the RNH deal, right? Like, if he was going to take something really team-friendly, uh, considering he's a legacy player, he's already top 10 in franchise scoring, you know, you're, you're being like, okay, this guy's going to be like one of the guys who plays minutes for us while we rebuild. He's going to teach players how to do it the right way 
and down the line, we're going to put him in the ring of honor. And, you know, we're basically like home, home baking, uh, you know, a, a Trevor Linden and, and we're going to hopefully restock in two, three years and give him a shot as our third line center when he's 31, 32 and still winning 60% of draws. Um, like right. that's one thing, but even then, I, I don't think either made sense for this club given where they're at and all the holes. Harmon, chime in. What do you think? Well, you guys are both right. Because I was sort of in your camp, Drance, that they probably should have kind of looked to to move both and um, gotten deep with their sort of roster decisions and who they looked to move out. But then on top of that, they also then picked the wrong guy. <laughs> right. Both right. Fair right. enough. Well, they, like, they could have saved money. They, they could have saved money if they had gotten Bo done when he did. Second thing with Bo for me, number one, they need to move him. Like I'm not at all advocating currently that they keep him because teams actually want him. They can actually get a, a haul. They clearly couldn't, even though they overplayed their hand. The 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 offers and concepts that we were discussing around JT Miller aren't close to what we are in Bo Horvat. But Bo Horvat is the type of player that can see you. And help you through a rebuild. Now, again, that's not worth what they could potentially get for him. Um, but, you know, like Elias Pettersson could be gone this offseason. Do any of us three have faith that he definitely wants to be here? Oh, boy. I'm not getting radioed over that one, bud. Okay. So, so <laughs> I'm telling you, I don't have faith that he wants to be here. And I could see a scenario this summer where they try to negotiate an extension and he's like, uh-uh, I'm out of here. I don't know that as inside knowledge. I've just kind of nibbled around the edges on that particular topic. He could sign, but my gut tells me I'm not convinced he's enamored with any of this, right? Especially well, hey, a guy who quite like Bruce Boudreaux. <laughs> so as you're looking for pieces, like, are, are we getting rid of all of it? Pedersen, Hughes, Demko, all of it? Or do you want somebody there to, to kind of <clears throat> help shepherd this and try to instill a level of character and culture in the room? And I thought Horvat could be that guy that at one point in time, before all of this went down, he really wanted to be here. This is this was it for him, right? So that was my thought before the season. Now as it's played out the way it has, and he's valued this highly, of course you got to move him. Jeremy, you had another question. Yeah. What was it? Yeah, thanks for those answers, guys. Um, so my other question is, um, what I see is best-case scenario it's going to take five years to turn this team around and that's going to be getting into maybe the prime years, maybe the later years of the prime years of guys like Pedersen and Demko and Hughes. So do you see that being a, a, you know, a realistic scenario or do we just tear it all down at this point? Um, because it's, it's not looking great that this management will be able to pivot quickly enough to make that happen within the next three to five years. Harm? Yeah, I think... Thanks, Jeremy. It's, it's tough to put a window on it because it's predicated on them doing the right things. You know, like, we could have all looked at, for example, um, when the well, last... Um, not this past offseason, but the one before, where it was like you had one year left of Beagle, Roussel, um, Erickson, and you looked at all that dead cap space coming off, and you could say, like, all right, there's a pass to, I mean, I don't want to put an exact number on it, but, you know, within, once those contract, contracts expire, two, three years, this team's going to be, like, good. They're going to be, and maybe in, like, four years, it's like, you're elite, if you play it the right way. 
Well, then that's where, when they obviously screwed things up because they were impatient and made the OEL Garland blockbuster. And now it's like that timeline's totally out of the window, right? So when you look when you look at the situation that they're in right now, yeah, I mean, it's you're looking at a timeline where if you bottom out, it's going to be at least five years to be um, competitive again um, at a point where your playoff team and you can you can talk about the Canucks as a potentially good squad. But again, that's predicated on them tearing things down and rebuilding, whereas we're clearly being sold a retool right now. And the problem with that, right, the problem with trying to do to both things at once in terms of competing right now and building for the future is because it is that those decisions are often com- uh, like competing interests, right? They're up. They often contradict each other in terms of what's required, right? If you want to be competitive right now, starting next season and build towards that quick fix within two years, that means you're signing more contracts. That means you're buying guys out. That means you're um, not targeting draft picks when you make trades. Um, that's not going to help you get to a point where you're contending for a cup in five years. It may get to get you to a point where if everything breaks right, maybe you're a playoff team and, and maybe you win around in three years if everything works out, but it still doesn't get you to the point where you're an elite team. Um, whereas obviously if you lean into we're tearing things down, that's a totally different direction um, in terms of, of your priorities with what you're doing with your cap space, what you're doing with your assets. So for that reason, it's like it's almost impossible to kind of put a timeline on this until we we have confidence and faith that this management group has the right plan and is executing on that vision. I couldn't say it better, so I'm not going to. I just want to say I don't think a bottom out requires you to take five years. I think you can do it in two. All right, ARP. We're going to go to ARP here. This is our last this is our last one and we've gone for 90 minutes. So ARP's going to be our last question that we'll take and thanks to everyone for joining us. ARP, do you hear us? I can hear you, Thomas. Um just I'll keep it sort of short. Three points questions related. One, I think that if you accept the premise that they're not rebuilding right now, which is what they've told all of us, I think there's a pathway for an OEL buyout this summer because it's the most favorable it's going to be. Now, my first question will be in relation to that, which is that, you know, when Jason Garrison got dealt when Benning was hired, the rumor at the time was that, you know, they made it very clear, hey, you either take the deal or life's going to be sort of difficult being on the Canucks, you might get benched, etc. Is the talk at hiring partially motivated by sort of, hey, like, maybe OEL is more flexible or maybe if we're going to buy him out in the offseason anyways. Second question, um, you know, if we're going the route of non-rebuild and sort of targeting guys, you know, with Willie, there was the medicine hat guys. Um, I wonder if the foot kid children become a target. So that's my second question. Um, what do you think of that? Especially, I think the forward, the one with the devils, wouldn't surprise me. It seems like the type of player the Canucks would take a run at. And sort of very lastly, um, Sergey Gonchar. You have this defensive development coach. You're starting to see sort of, you know, these skills coaches that exist due to automotes, et cetera. Um, I've never seen a skills development coach specifically for defense. Um, what's your guys' sort of takes on using that to improve the defensive structure and abilities? Thanks, Arp. So the first question was, uh, does anyone remember? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. oh, no, sorry. I'm not. Say it again. <laughs> Did you actually forget? Yeah, yeah, I did. Okay. I always do. Uh, it was the idea of could the um, talk at hire have partially been um, to sort of create an environment that's not uncomfortable, but maybe more to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and the, and the prospect of an OEL buyout, I don't think we're going to see an OEL buyout, but, um, you know, for me anyway, I think an OEL buyout is something you only consider if you're like doing an absolute teardown, like a absolute straight up, we're going to spend two years being bad and accumulating as much as we can. And we need that money to take on bad money for assets. Like we need to make that deal so we can, or we need to do that buyout so we can make the Sean Monahan deal, right? Like then it makes sense. Short of that, I, I think. If you're trying to be good in a hurry, then I think you're trying to upgrade the top four and like OEL bear on paper for me is your like third pair when you're, you know, decent. Um, so I, I'd be surprised by an OEL buyout. I don't think that's going to be a primary consideration for the club this offseason. As for the Tocket thing, you know, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, you know, I don't have any insider knowledge. I don't think, um, you know, motivating OEL to wave was necessarily top of mind in, in making the talk at higher. Um, do you remember what the second part of the question was, Harmon? Um, I didn't exactly catch. It. I think it was, um, sort of mentioning the idea of when Willie was here, for example, they target a lot of medicine hat. Um, oh, right. If the foot, uh, Nolan and, uh, Cal foot, um, I don't know. I don't know. Cal foot makes sense to me as like a guy they'd see as being like in that age window who they think has upside to maybe be like a long-term fit with Quinn Hughes, like a younger Luke Shen. And maybe the lightning would value the actual more dependable, more experienced Luke Shen at the moment. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess I could see that one. Uh, Nolan is a primary target from the devils. Uh, I think they have better prospects at the end of the day. Like if that's the, if that's their main target in a deal with the devils, I think they should, be looking at one of those like speedy Hoaglander types that the devils seem to be developing in a lab at the moment. Your Bachvist, Zetterland style players. Those guys are sick. And the Sergei Gonchar effect was the third question. And mm. an interesting arrangement there, right? As a consultant, as opposed to necessarily an assistant coach. So he's going to be in and out of town. Uh, he'll be available on Zoom calls and call. Like, I don't know. Interesting, interesting arrangement, wouldn't you think? Well, you know, they've got Shen and, and Horvat who've worked with Bo Horvat, or sorry, uh, they've got Shen and, and Bo Horvat who've worked with Adam Oates. It makes sense to try and have your own version of that in-house, right? Like the Leafs have Daryl Belfry, although some of his external clients are grandfathered in. Um, you know, if Oates can have that sort of impact where Luke Shen credits him with rebuilding his career and Bo Horvat credits him with helping him find another level uh, in terms of seeing the ice as an offensive player... Um, you know, if you can have that effect and extrapolate it across your roster, I mean, that's a competitive edge that could be pronounced, could be effective. Um, so it makes sense to try. You know, I don't hate, I don't hate new ideas. Like I don't hate new, I don't hate an organization trying new things there by any means. And, and Gonchar obviously had a tremendous amount of success working with a blue line that was far more than the sum of its parts, um, you know, during those back to back cup runs. Um, all right, should we leave it there, guys? That was a nice, long, fun conversation. And um, and obviously a necessary one today. I know there's a lot of angst in Canucks Nation. We feel it with you. Uh, we, we appreciate the amount of passion still invested in this team. We appreciate your support of The Athletic. You guys are VIPs for a reason. We'll keep treating you like it. And, uh, and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll hope that the organization charts a, a credible course to, to build brighter days around this franchise in the, in the very near future future the talk at era begins at practice at rogers arena tomorrow thank you for joining me for me for farhan for Harmon. this is the vancast live on a big day for the vancouver canucks